Hi everyone, here we are at the finish line of our series in Romans 8, one of the greatest chapters in the whole Bible. And uh, I just pray this journey has been as meaningful to you as it's been for me. Uh, God has revealed uh, to us such a beautiful picture of the fullness of the Christian life and, and the resource that we have in His Holy Spirit. And so let me invite you now to take your copy of God's Word, whether it's a paper or digital, and turn to the end of Romans 8, where we're going to see today the truth of this big idea, that the Spirit's greatest role is to remind you of the depth of God's love. We look around us these days and we wonder if there's any hope for the future. Like division between people groups abounds and fear abounds and confusion abounds and frustration and anger abounds. And so what, what, what can I say as a pastor today to strengthen your faith, to calm your fears about our uncertain future? You know, should I try to, to comfort you that America is durable and, and we'll come together in, in great bipartisan unity and prove that this democratic system is strong and, and unshakable? Or should I try to strengthen your faith in our military might, that we can turn back any destructive force against our nation? Or should I try to encourage you financially and comfort you that, that when the market opens on Monday, there's going to be stability and long-term growth to preserve the value of all your investments? Or the U.S. dollar will remain strong in the world stage? Should I try to strengthen your hope emotionally and send you to a, a self-help website so that you can uh, read about how to build your coping skills or how to maintain a high view of self or how to avoid an invasive anxiety. I just don't think that any of that would be a good use of our time today. Do you know why? Well, it's because the American political system is not imperishable. And our military and our police forces, as great as they are, can't protect you from every destructive force. And the financial future that we have is not certain and your emotional health will never be foolproof. So no, as a pastor of the gospel today, I wanna to strengthen your faith and bolster your hope with these words. Romans 8, 35 to 39 is our sure hope. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, a lot of people have given up on Christians these days. The term Christian has become like a curse word in many circles. A lot of people have given up on the church these days. They roll their eyes at the very mention of the church. Do you know who hasn't given up on us? Our God hasn't. In fact, but based on what I just read, the love of God is downright scandalous. L let me personalize it. God's love for you is downright scandalous. His love is constant and it's never changing. His love comes to you free of charge, no strings attached. A love that seems to, to go against our very instinct. Like, we think we should work for it. We think we should earn it to sacrifice enough that we could prove to God that we deserve it. Like, other religions try to earn favor with their God through an eightfold path or prayer rugs or karma or obeying strict codes of conduct. Only the Christian God offers us a love that is unconditional. It's scandalous. It's crazy. It's irrational. Today's text is in response to the question that Paul asked himself way back in verse 31. He said, what, sh what shall we say in response to all of this? 
Actually, there have been a series of rhetorical questions Paul is using for effect here at the end. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God gave us his son, will he not freely give us all things? And who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And who is to condemn us? And now, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And what's the deal with all these questions? Well, let me remind you that all of Romans 8 has been telling us how it's possible to experience God by the work of his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into you and me, and because he takes up residence in us, a new kind of life is possible for us. Now, in the first part of this chapter, it's all about the Spirit. The Spirit is mentioned 17 times in the first few verses, over and over and over again. And because of the work of the Holy Spirit, we can know God, and we can have a sense of God in our heart, and we can experience him. But, but why would a chapter have the Spirit mentioned in every verse at the beginning, suddenly get to the end of the chapter, and have no mention of the Holy Spirit at all by name? From verse 31 to all the way to verse 39, the Spirit seems absent from Paul's vocabulary. Just a bunch of rhetorical questions. What, who, what would bring a charge against us? Who would condemn us? Who will separate us? And, and then some I statements. Paul's saying, I am persuaded. I am convinced. I am assured. Why would a chapter on the work of the Holy Spirit end like this? Well, here's what I wonder. I wonder if Paul has reached the end of this glorious chapter and is now just kind of riffing on his own experience with the Holy Spirit. He's reflecting on what the Spirit has revealed personally to him. And, and in the process of this reflection, he's becoming like a model for us in how to interact with the Spirit. He's showing us that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the main thing. It's what his job is. And it is the absolute core idea of what it means to experience God day to day. The Holy Spirit assures you and reminds you and convinces you and encourages you again and again and again that nothing can separate you from the love of God. I love that the bookends of Romans 8 are in verse 1, he says, no condemnation. And in verse 39, he says, no separation. And in between those great verses, we learn that, that his love has adopted us as daughters and sons, that his love is working all things together for our good, that his love has predestined that we will be conformed to the likeness of, of God's son, that his love calls us and it, it justifies us and it glorifies us. And now it's like Paul brings us into his spiritual reflections. What, what can we say in response to all this? What shall we say to this bewildering glory? God has committed his greatest resource to ensure that every promise he has made to even the weakest or poorest of us will be fulfilled. All of God is for all of us. God has not spared his son so that all of us would be spared. He will most certainly give us all things. And when Satan tries to weasel in, God responds forcefully that Christ has died for us. No one dares condemn us. I mean, just incredible promise after incredible truth. And if all these things are true, if we are loved in all of these ways to this measure, to that extent, then one final observation, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And I imagine Paul setting down his pen and sitting down next to a fire and just reflecting personally, listening to the Spirit, testifying to his Spirit. And the Spirit begins to take him, Paul, back through some of the key moments of Paul's life. And the Spirit does his job by just reminding Paul at every turn of the great love story of God. He, Paul takes us into his prayer closet and he says, let me end the chapter this way. Here's what the Spirit has revealed 
to me. And looking back over his life, Paul was how could Paul have possibly dealt with all the things that he dealt with? And so he picks his pen back up because the Spirit is speaking. That in every single situation and circumstance that he faced, every relationship, every confrontation, every struggle, every negotiation, in every temptation, in every disappointment, Paul had a secret weapon. And the Spirit is reminding him that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Guys, you and I too have this secret weapon. Praise God for that. Let's go back to these verses and I want to, to ponder with you the matchless love of God. The, the first thing I want you to see is that God has a protective love for you as his child. So, so he says, who shall separate us? And then I'm going to jump ahead in the text to help us determine who is the us, like who are the recipients of this love. It's true that God has a universal love for all people and all of his creation. There is a loving kindness, a common grace that God has for all people. But this passage is talking about the love of God, which he says is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, Paul is talking about God's love for those who have placed their faith in Christ, his children. And God's love for his own, for his people, is so great that anything else looks practically like hatred in comparison. Nothing can separate you from that love. God's love for you is secure. So in John 13, 1, it says that Jesus, having loved his own, loved them to the end. His love for you is enduring. Earlier in the chapter, we were able to take assurance from the fact that God is defending you. And he has declared you innocent of all charges, but it's another level altogether that he loves you. Years ago, Philip Yancey wrote an article entitled The Atrocious Mathematics of the Gospel, where he stated that God's idea of fairness isn't the same as ours. You see, from nursery school onward, we're taught how to succeed in the world. The early bird gets the worm. No pain, no gain. You get, to, you know, you get what you pay for. Like we know these rules and we live by these rules because we want the world to be fair, cause and effect. And we want God to be fair too. The problem is God isn't fair. And praise God that he isn't because if we had gotten fairness, we would have gotten hell. God's love isn't fair, which means there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more. No amount of spiritual calisthenics, no amount of knowledge gained from seminaries and divinity schools, no amount of uh, crusading on behalf of righteous causes. God doesn't love a future cleaned up version of you. He loves you right now as much as he's ever going to love you. Your steady and solid hope this morning is that if you will trust Christ as your precious savior and your supremely valued king, then you will be folded into the love of God in a way that no terrorist, no torture, no demons, no disasters, no disease, no man, no virus, no government, no grave can ever take away from you. Now, if Paul had asked a slightly different question like this, what uh, can separate us from our love for Jesus? The answer is sadly, almost anything, <laughs> like lots of stuff. Our love for God most days is weak and frail and feeble. If we had to rest our hope on the strength of our love for God, there's no comfort there. There's no assurance there. Because most of us facing the distresses and persecutions and fires of which Paul is speaking would fail. 
But Paul is asking a different question. Who can separate us from his love for us? Who can separate me from his love for me? Now that's a different question because his love for me is unending and it's unquenchable and it's irrevocable. His love for his children is protective. There is nothing that can penetrate through it. Now listen, I feel like I need to say this every week. This does not mean that children of God won't suffer. In fact, verse 36, where Paul is quoting Psalm 44, and then he applies it to himself and to Christians in general. He says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This means that martyrdom is normal in Christianity. It's happening all over the world, even in our day. Our brothers and sisters in Pakistan and Nepal and Sudan and Indonesia and Vietnam and Yemen and North Korea, so many other countries for whom suffering and death and calamity is very real. I just saw that a Christian couple in Iran was sentenced for 10 years in prison for their membership in a house church. Nearly 200,000 Christians will die this year because of their faith. The, the, The relatively tolerant approach that we have in our country is not normal around the world. And we should be thankful for it every day while it lasts. But when our circumstances close in around us, we take comfort in the rock-solid protective love of God. It can never be stolen from you. The second thing to see about this matchless love of God is this, that God's love is stronger than all calamity. So Paul starts listing out all the things that will never be able to compare to the love of God. And when you take the list and when you hold it up against another passage, that Paul wrote over in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, you'll see that Paul has personally gone through most of these things. I want you to listen to the list of the stuff that Paul has been through. He says, five times I received the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day, and I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So, so, so Paul is what we would call overqualified to talk about God's love in the face of calamity. He's just trying to make this point that there's nothing and no one anywhere and at any time, dead or alive, that, w- that we have faced or will face where God's children will be separated from his love. So so if you have the Bible in front of you, the Word of God in front of you, I'm I'm going to be combining two lists here, the the one in verse 35 in Romans 8 and the list in 38 and 39 of Romans 8. He speaks of all the things that will never separate us, and I've created some categories that I think some of these concepts fall into. They capture, I think, some of our greatest fears and calamities. Are you ready? So, So here's these statements. God's love is stronger than everything emotional. So when he says tribulation or distress, these are emotional pressures and stresses of life. When it feels like sadness or shame or anger or rage or frustration or depression or disappointment are closing in all around you, God's love is stronger. God's love is stronger than everything physical. He says persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. When you fear something bad might happen to you, or or maybe even your child, like bullying or violence or theft or threats of any kind, even poverty or destitutions, God's love is stronger. Now, it gets more broad. God's love is stronger than everything earthly. 
He says, neither death nor life, nor things present, nor anything in all creation. So, so whatever situation you might experience during your years on this earth, think back to your childhood years, to your teenage years, young adult, middle age, maturing age years. God's love sustains you through everything you'll face on this earth. But not only the physical, emotional, and earthly stuff, he says God's love is stronger than everything supernatural. He says, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. Even if you say, there's got to be some demonic influence going on here. This also applies to leaders, by the way, or governments, which are divinely ordained by God. His love is stronger still. Finally, God's love is stronger than anything in the future. He says, nor things to come. And I, I love this as kind of a catch-all. One of the great fears people have is what's going to happen in the future. It's a mystery. We can't see it. And sometimes we assume the worst about it. So what's going to happen in, in Ukraine? What's going to happen if China and Russia join forces? What's going to happen with, with AI? Uh, what's going to happen if my side doesn't win the le next election? What's going to happen with my kids in school? What's going to happen to my dying parent? He, he says, look out into the future. And even all of that uncertainty is covered by the love of God. God's love is stronger than all calamity. In his book, Life in the Spirit, Jeff Anderson tells the story of George Matheson from 1842 in Glasgow, Scotland. Matheson understood these truths of Romans 8 better than most. He was born the first of eight children. He grew up with vision problems. By the time he earned a master's degree in Glasgow University in 1862, he was nearly sightless. He'd comp contemplated suicide, but eventually he met a woman and he hoped to marry, but even she turned him down due to his disability. He met Jesus and he was called to ministry and later became known for his joyful attitude as well as his tremendous preaching skills. He was referred to as the blind preacher. His fame spread so widely, in fact, that Queen Victoria invited him to deliver a sermon for her. Most who saw Matheson preach didn't realize that he was practically blind. Often he seemed to be glancing down at his notes, which he obviously didn't need because of his amazing memory. But Matheson depended heavily on his eldest sister for help in his writing and, and really his whole ministry. But in 1882, she got married. It was a huge loss for him. In the midst of uh, some struggle and some reflections on the night of her wedding, he began to write the lyrics of a hymn. Matheson later described the evening this way. He said, my hymn was composed in the rectory on the evening of the 6th of June, 1882, when I was 40 years of age. I was alone in the house at the time. It was the night of my sister's marriage and the rest of the family were staying overnight in Glasgow. Something happened to me which was known only to myself and which caused me the most severe mental suffering. The hymn was the fruit of that suffering. It was the quickest bit of work I ever did in my life. I had the impression of having it dictated to me by some inward voice rather than of working it out myself. I'm quite sure that the whole work was completed in five minutes and equally sure that it never received at my hands any retouching or correction. I have no natural gift of rhythm. All the other verses I have ever written are manufactured articles. This came like a day spring from on high. And here are the first and third verses of the hymn that George Matheson wrote that night, a hymn that is sung around the world still under the title, O Love That Wilt Not Let Me Go. It goes like this, O oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O oh, joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain, that morn shall tearless be. See, despite the pain, the disappointment, the frustration of his difficult life, 
Matheson knew that God's love would never let him go. Nothing, not tribulation, not hardship, frailty, emotional highs or lows, not fears about the future. Nothing could separate him from God's love in Christ Jesus. He knew the day would come when his body would be made new, his vision would be restored, those eyes that would never have reason again to shed a tear. So what do we do with this? What, what should you do with the matchless love of God? Let me talk first about what I don't think you should do. I think we need to avoid two extremes as we consider the love of God. The first extreme is pride. Like most of those who gravitate toward pride in this extreme, they don't say it out loud, but they kind of act like it. Well, of course God loves me. In fact, he's lucky to have me on his team. But more than pride, I think the more common extreme these days is shame that says, well, God would never take someone like me. Some of you think, you know, Derek, you have no idea how dark my heart is. You have no idea the evil stuff I've done. It's really, really bad. Well, let me just address you this way, and not to pile on. <laughs> but, but that bad stuff that you've done is not even your biggest problem. I've said it this way before. Your biggest problem is not how bad your bad deeds are compared to God. Your biggest problem is how bad your good deeds are compared to God. The Bible says that even our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags compared to the righteousness of God. And so here, here's the thing, like when it is all clicking for you on your very best day as a parent, your most romantic day as a husband, your hardest working day as an employee, or your most moral or your most generous or your boldest or most courageous witnessing day as a Christian, that, that if you take all of those good days and you stack them together and you put them on a big pile and you hold them up to God as a trophy, this is the reason, God, that, 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 that you should love me. Me. This is the reason, God, why you should be impressed by me. It's like a guy holding up a bunch of dirty trash as his big trophy of achievement. And, and don't hear what I'm not saying. We absolutely should try to live good and holy and pure lives and hold them up before God. But, but our motivation must be as a response from receiving grace from God on the back end and not a way to earn his love on the front end. Because you know why? Because God's love is not based on you, it's based on him. And it doesn't follow the same logical, fair, cause and effect kind of relationships that we know. It's what Yancey called earlier, the atrocious mathematics of the gospel. It doesn't add up. God has been so kind. And so what do we do with it? Well, I, I love Paul's approach in verse 37. He says that, that we are more than conquerors. That, that's, that's, a, that's, you know, five words in, in English. In the Greek, it's only one word. It means literally super overcomers. <laughs> so what does that mean? Well, back in the day, a boring, regular old conqueror is a soldier who defeats his enemies, and then he comes riding back into the village, his hometown, with his victorious army, with great rejoicing after the battle is over. And so what is a super conqueror? What is a more than conqueror? How do you get any better than that? Well, I think what Paul's suggesting here is that a super conqueror is someone who, who can start rejoicing before the battle's even over. And that's what we are. That right in the midst of it, as the battle is still raging while the swords and, uh, are still clanking and the blood and the sweat is still flowing and the enemy is still advancing, that's when a super conqueror can start rejoicing. But how? I mean, let's face it, we, we didn't really conquer anything. Paul says the only reason that we're super conquerors is through him who loved us. We are not the ones who conquered hell. We didn't conquer death. We didn't conquer Satan. But because Jesus did, and because he loves us with this matchless love, well, then we can rejoice even while the battle rages on. We are on the winning team, and soon our victory will be secured. 
One of my favorite quotes from Mother Teresa, she described the first moment of eternity as this. She said, the first kiss from Jesus in that first second of glory is gonna make all the suffering you've ever experienced seem like one night in a bad hotel. <laughs> so back to our question. Knowing that this matchless love has been aimed at you and applied to you, and as a result, you can rejoice even before you reach the end of your current battle. What should you do with the matchless love of God? And there's a lot of directions I could go with this. You, you could just bask in it for a while. You could serve him. You, you owe him your very life. Or you, you should serve others with that same matchless love. But for today, I want to go more foundational than that. We see it again and again in the Bible when people have a personal encounter with God. I'll phrase it this way. What should you do with the matchless love of God? Let it undo you. I think of Isaiah when he comes face to face in the throne room of God. And he says, just, woe is me. He says, I'm unclean. I'm undone. I think of Peter in the boat when Jesus calms the storm and he has this first understanding that he's in the presence of God. He just falls to his face. He says, depart, depart from me. Just leave me. Just leave me alone. I'm not worthy of all this. Or when Elijah experienced it on the mountain and he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went back to the cave. Or when doubting Thomas saw Jesus' scar, he just declared, my Lord and my God. I think it looks different for everyone, but when you experience God firsthand, there's a sense of just being undone. And I pray that that would happen for you. You see, in Romans chapter eight, we've seen this collision between God's holiness, which, which required our justification, and his radical love that should just melt us the combination of these two things, holiness and love, is sometimes referred to as God's glory. Glory simply means weight. And when something heavier is dropped on something lighter, what happens? The, the, the lighter thing is displaced. When a heavy brick is dropped into lighter water, the, the water quakes, the water ripples, it, it moves, it's displaced. And so when the reality of God drops into your life. Everything has to move around. It's displaced. You have to move because he ain't moving. So as we wrap up this series called Life in the Spirit, I want to end where we started, that there's a big difference between encountering God as a concept and encountering God as a reality. See, the idea of God, the concept of God is lighter than you. You shape the concept. It fits around your categories and your ideas. It fits inside your existing beliefs. The mere concept of God isn't heavy enough to displace your agendas or plans or goals. People get religious because they want help achieving their own goals. You want a divine assistant, you want a consultant, you want a life coach, but you still want to call the shots. So you concoct a concept of God that's lighter than you. But when you hit something like Romans 8, <laughs> and you get a sense of the, the holiness of God, and then this radical, matchless love of God, his glory, and the, the availability of his spirit for you. And you are led to personally encounter the true God. When God is no longer just a concept, but a reality, all of the sudden, his glory is much weightier than you can withstand. He doesn't fit your agenda. He becomes your agenda. And he begins to radically change your plans and your priorities. And because you're the one being undone. You're the one being displaced. He rearranges everything. And every person who has really met God remembers the time when God went from a concept 
to a reality, when the weight of God's glory and his matchless love began to displace their life. This is how you know that you've experienced the depths of the love of God. Your surrender to him no longer has conditions or contingencies. Isaiah said it best, he said, here, here am I, send me. No more strings, God, no more negotiations, no more, God, I'll do this as long as you give me that. Like, when you allow his love to undo you, you are in a posture of total surrender. God, I'm yours. And church, I pray for you today that you would be undone by the matchless love of God because there's no adventure in this life that can match it. And some of you need to respond to it today in salvation. Some of you need to respond to it today in the waters of baptism. But let his love undo you. Some of you have possessed this matchless love, but you've never truly personalized it. I'm reminded of a story of a woman who inherited a piece of jewelry. That piece of jewelry had been in her family from generation to generation, as far back as anyone can remember. Nobody had really taken care of this possession. It had just gotten tossed around, often misplaced, and managed to make it from one attic to, to the next attic, from house to house. One day, the woman decided to take it to a jewelry store to get it appraised. And the jeweler gets his little, you know, eye thingy out, and he begins to look at this piece of jewelry. And he notices the way that the facets of the stone refract the light and the colors and the textures. And all of a sudden, his, the, the eye thingy pops out, and he jumps back out of his chair. He can hardly catch his breath. Because he's realized that this is a one-of-a-kind, priceless diamond. has never been replicated in all of history. What that jeweler held in his hand was more valuable than anything else in his collection combined altogether. And when he tells the woman of its value, she's astounded, totally overcome with emotion. First and foremost, because she realizes that she wasn't, listen, that she wasn't living in accordance with the true value of the treasure that she possessed. She thought of all the times that she had treated this treasure far too casually compared to what it was actually worth. And her entire life was changed when she realized the value of the treasure that was hers. That is my prayer for us, Grace Church, at the end of Romans 8. That when you truly encounter the God of this chapter, through the revelation of His Holy Spirit, when you see Him for who He truly is, that you'll jump out of your seat, you'll cry and shout, that you'll hide your face, that you'll fall to your knees in celebration of the value of the treasure that you possess. Maybe some of you will confess and repent of how casually you've treated this treasure. You've been forgiven, your life was spared, you've been made clean, and now who or what can separate you from the love of Christ? The answer is no one and nothing. Praise be to our great God. We could think of no better way to close this series than just to worship him. So I want to invite you guys to do just that. I love you, Grace.